Gospel according to Huey Lewis and the News. You can't beat that. That's awesome. Well, this morning we kick off a four-part series entitled Back to the Future. In the 1985 movie, the character played by Michael J. Fox inadvertently travels back in time to the time when his parents were growing up, and he spent the rest of the movie trying to get back to his present day and age. So, Joe, what does Back to the Future have to do with Jesus? What does Back to the Future have to do with our faith? Well, we're going back in time to look at the lives of the earliest followers of Jesus, all in an effort to look at how you and I are following. Following Christ today. We're going to jump into that in a matter of moments. As we'll see, the early church, they focused so much on those deep-rooted connections, those relationships with one another. And one of the most basic human needs is the need to belong, to be cared for, and to be accepted. It's one of the reasons why the early church grew so quickly the way it did. The early followers of Jesus considered themselves to be a part of the same family. Despite their differences, they were part of the same family. That is revolutionary, almost scandalous to the people who heard about this. But first, I want you to check out the big screen to see just how powerful that human connection can be.
Interesting, since that story aired a couple of years ago, a single woman saw the story. She reached out to that detective. They started dating. A little bit later, they were married, and so the boys now have a loving father and a loving mother. How cool is that? Now, this morning, like I said, we kick off a four-part series entitled Back to the Future. We're going to head way back to look at the early followers of Christ and how we can learn so much about what God is doing through them and what God wants to do through you and for me. We're going to take a look at the book of Acts. Now, let me give you a little bit of backstory to the book of Acts, okay? This, I think, is fascinating stuff. The books of the Bible were originally written individually. Most of them were letters by different different people in different places, like I said, by different authors at different times to different original audiences. Uh, they weren't titled at all. And as, as the, the, the letters, as these books began to uh, circulate, titles were assigned to the different books, these different writings. And uh, the book of Acts refers to the Acts of the Apostle. What is an apostle? Let me give you a quick background of this, okay? Sometimes the word disciple and apostle are used interchangeably, but they really have different meanings and connotations. The word disciple means a student of, one who learns from another. But the word apostle means messenger, someone who is on a mission, someone who is delivering a message. So the title, Acts of the Apostles, it really means we are studying the teachings of the ones in the early church who spread the faith. The book of Acts, it was written by Luke. He was a doctor, a physician, I think a really thorough historian as well. He wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. Now, scholars think that because the book of Acts ends rather abruptly, that maybe Luke had intended to write yet a third book that just never made it. So, the book of Acts, it more or less connects the dots between Jesus' ministry and the start of the Christian church. Now, Acts tells of the early followers of Jesus and how God was blessing their efforts as Christianity just, just spread like wildfire throughout the world. Luke also then later writes about the terrible hardship and persecution that the early church had to endure. So we're going to go to the second chapter of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, from this passage, we can read that the early Christians were, quote, devoted. Devoted to what? Well, the Scripture gives us four things to which the early followers of Jesus were devoted, okay? They were devoted to the teachings of Jesus. 
Uh, They were devoted to fellowship. That's a a fancy word for community and relationships. I'll dig deeper into that in a matter of moments. Uh, They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, this doesn't refer to Holy Communion. We find that elsewhere in Acts. But it refers to the fact that they're having meals together. And in that day and age, sharing a meal was really an intimate sign, okay? Preparing a meal obviously was very time-consuming. In that day and age, it was quite expensive. And so having a meal together was really a very, very rare and an intimate encounter. Now, the early Christians, it says, were also devoted to prayer. So they were devoted to those four things. And and let me ask you this question. I've asked myself this question many, many times this week in anticipation of our time together this morning. Uh, To what are you devoted? To what are you devoted? If someone you know, if we were to ask them the question, To what are they devoted to? How would they respond to that? The passage tells us that the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, these early believers, they were devoted to fellowship. What what does this mean? Now, we often think of the word fellowship in describing maybe when the church comes together in some sort of social setting. Many churches, including Russell, they have a fellowship hall. We often use the word fellowship when talking about certain activities in the life of the church. Now, the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. Greek. Well done. And the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. Starts with a K. Koinonia. This word, though, means far more than simply fellowship. Koinonia refers to a deep level of trust, a deep level of community. In fact, we get the word communion from the Greek word koinonia. It's not just some sort of social gathering. It's about coming together because of Jesus and through Jesus. Koinonia refers to deep-rooted relationships. Uh, Just a, a little aside, a little bit of trivia. In last year's National Spelling Bee, the word koinonia was the final word A 14-year-old from Texas got it right and then won the spelling bee. So interesting stuff when we talk about koinonia. Now, when talking about the early believers, uh, notice that I refer to them as followers of Jesus. I don't really refer to them as Christians simply because when this was written, the term Christian really wasn't in use yet. Well, we'll find it actually in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. But at this point in Acts 2, the, the early followers of Jesus were not yet called Christians. Jesus never gave this name to his followers. The term Christian, like I said, wasn't used until years later. In fact, the word Christian you'll find only three times in the Bible. And in each of those situations, the word Christian was not used by the church itself. They weren't using the the, the term to describe themselves. Each of the three times the word Christian was used, it was used by an outsider to describe what was going on in that group. In the Bible, for believers or followers of Jesus or Christians, the most popular word that was used to describe them, oddly enough, is the word saints. We often look at saints as maybe dead people or deceased people, or maybe uh, from a Catholic background, people with some sort of miraculous characteristics. But the word saint simply refers to any follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, according to the Scripture, you indeed are a saint. So if, if husbands, if you're in here and your wife is next to you, turn to her and said, Joe said that you are married to a saint. Just remember that, okay? That's good stuff. 
These early followers of Christ, they still actually consider themselves to be Jewish. They weren't initially or originally seeking to start any sort of new religion. They believed that Jesus was the one that ancient Jewish, Jewish prophets had predicted. And so in their eyes, Jesus, Jesus wasn't a replacement for their Jewish faith. Rather, Jesus was the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. Uh, but you see, their lives looked so different from the rest of that culture. There, there was this deep-rooted sense of connection, these relationships. There was a deep sense of trust and of the desire to help one another, not only within their set or their group of believers, but people outside of their faith as well. And the way they lived their lives brought about a lot of attention. People took notice of the way these men and women were so deliberately and intentionally serving those around them. So uh, let's go back to scripture, verses 43 and 44. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Interesting stuff. The word everyone not only refers to the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, but really to the entire culture in general. Are people in awe over what we're doing here in Chapel Roswell? Can people be amazed at what takes place outside of these walls because of what is taking place inside of these walls? Verse 44 gives us two characteristics of the early believers. It says that they had everything in common. Everything in common. Uh, does this mean that they literally had everything in common? Uh, no, the, the people came from differing backgrounds, from different places, from different experiences, but they had the most important thing in common, their passion for their faith in Jesus. Rich or poor, young and old, Europeans and Middle Easterners and Asians and Africans, male and female, slave and free, they were realizing that their backgrounds no longer define them. Their backgrounds no longer define them. Their identity came not from their culture, not from their past, but from God. We, we talked about that last week. If we don't allow our identity to come from God, the world will be happy to do it for us. So the early followers of Jesus realized this radical concept that our faith is so much bigger than our differences. Our faith is so much bigger than our differences. And, and friends, I think that's something obviously we have to remember today because in our culture where things can be so divisive, we must remember to live out that radical calling of Christ, that we're to love our neighbors, going out of our way to show them that, that we love them. Why? Because God loves them. Verse 44 also says that the early believers were together. And this was both powerful and radical. In that day and age, people of differing backgrounds really didn't interact together. Uh, they weren't seen with one another. It just didn't happen in that culture or in that setting. You see, most of the cities of that day and age were surrounded by really large stone walls. And even within the city, you would frequently find more walls separating the, the various neighborhoods. You had a, a rich and poor in different parts of town. Uh, you had Jew and Gentile or non-Jew uh, in different parts of town. You had slaves and servants. And you had the wealthy in 
different parts of town. Uh, you had those who hailed from the Middle East, or in some cases, Europe or Asia. You had those who hailed from the African continent in different parts of town. And the groups almost never interacted. That is, until the followers of Jesus changed that. This newfound and fast-growing faith attracted and accepted people from all backgrounds and all walks of life. And that made an incredibly powerful impression on those who were not yet a part of it. In the early church, there was so much connection, even beyond the man-made barriers of that culture. And so one of the things we need to take from this this morning is that we were called not to live in isolation, okay? We were called not to live in isolation. God created us to be in relationship. There are no lone rangers in the Christian life. In fact, in Scripture, in the Bible, Christianity is always spoken of in terms of community, okay? In our culture, we might speak of a, a personal relationship with Jesus, but that concept would have been so foreign to the early church. Yes, one's decision to, to follow Christ is a private or a personal decision. It's a personal decision, but it really shouldn't be a private decision, okay? Your decision and my decision to accept and follow Jesus may be personal, but it shouldn't be private. One's faith had everything to do with being a part of something larger, stronger, and greater than they could experience on their own. Remember the Greek word koinonia, this deep-rooted relationship? A powerful example of what that koinonia should look like can be found in a study of the phrase one another, those two words, one another. In the Bible, there are 59 uses of that phrase, one another. Okay, speaking of the way in which we relate to one another, obviously 59 times in Scripture, it shows that relating to each other in a godly way is of great importance to God. Scripture commands us to be devoted to one another, to live in harmony with one another, to accept one another, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to encourage one another, to carry one another's burdens and to love one another. Uh, you see, these early believers, uh, they did life together. That, that connection, that koinonia was both life-giving and life-changing. Today, friends, we still need those connections. Here at Chapel Roswell, we offer a variety of ways to develop and strengthen those connections. We offer a, a myriad of a small groups. We have events and opportunities to, to get involved. We're a part of, of the larger church that offers so many ways to find connection and community. So think about that this morning, okay? How is God challenging you in terms of our koinonia, in terms of those relationships? How is God calling you to step beyond your comfort zone to develop or strengthen a sense of community? Just how important is that sense of community? A couple of interesting studies 
that show us a little bit about this. Just bear with me for a second on these, okay? Uh, During the latter years of the Vietnam War, there was a sobering report about heavy drug use and addiction amongst American servicemen. Heroin was the drug of choice. It was estimated that 25% of American soldiers in Vietnam had tried heroin. 15% according studies were addicted. Time Magazine reported that amongst U.S. soldiers, heroin use was as common as chewing gum. Heroin at the time was seen as the most addictive substance. Once you got addicted to it, well, you were hooked for life. That obviously called a, a lot of uh, fear. After all, when they returned back home, they would bring with them this epidemic. But you know what? That, that never happened. Subsequent studies have shown that of these servicemen who were addicted to heroin in Vietnam, less than 5% used heroin in the first year they were back home. 95% of the addicted soldiers simply stopped. They just didn't want the drug anymore. Why was that? How did so many heroin-addicted Vietnam War War veterans break addictions in such a small frame of time? Researchers wanted to know. And that led to a fascinating study done in the mid-1970s. There was a Canadian researcher who would take a rat a laboratory rat, and he would place it into a cage. Now, in this cage, there were two water bottles affixed to the cage, one on either side. The rat could go to either water bottle and drink whenever it wanted to. Now, only one of those bottles contained water. The other contained morphine, a highly addictive drug. The rat, like I said, could go to either side to drink from whatever bottle it wanted to. And what liquid do you think it preferred, the water or the drug? The drug, absolutely. The rats almost always chose to drink the drugged water. They would repeatedly do this over and over and over again until they overdosed and they died. But the researcher then did something a little bit different. Instead of keeping the rat in a small, isolated cage, he created what would become known as the rat park. The rat park was 200 times larger than the typical cage. Instead of being isolated, the the rat park had 16 to 20 rats of both genders. These big cages had plenty of food. They had climbing poles and balls and tunnels and colorful tubes to play in. And instead of being isolated and alone, the rats were now a part of a community. And this rat park also contained two water bottles, one on either side. One had the water, the other had the drug-laced bottle. Overall, the rats in the rat park were 19 times less likely to drink from the drugged water. The other rats did all the time, but but these other rats in, in the rat park almost never did. And of the rats in the rat park, not a single one overdosed or died. For these rats, you see, the researchers were able to determine that this power of community was stronger than the power of drugs. Now, now hear me on this, okay? I'm not downplaying the dangerous addiction to drugs. Far from it. Uh, okay, unlike the, uh, the rats that we had the experiments on, uh, many people do come from, from good, solid backgrounds, and they still fall victim to the painful destruction of drugs. But, but for these mice, there was such an interesting correlation between community and addiction. 
So, real quickly, let's go back to that study of Vietnam veterans returning home from the war. Remember, those addicted to heroin, only 5% of them used the drug when they returned home. Why, why was that? Well, using the Rat Park study as a basis, the, reacher, the researchers found out that, that when the servicemen returned home, uh, the drug-addicted veterans came back to families and to jobs and to churches and to communities. That sense of connection deeply affected their addictions, leading some researchers even to claim that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. I'm not a scientist, okay? I'm, I'm not a, a medical person. In fact, my annual physical is done once every seven years. But it is clear to see how this power of connection, friends, is so vital. It's one of our human needs. God created us to be in relationship. And that's one of the key reasons why the early church was growing by leaps and bounds. That even in the face of increasing persecution, Christians were risking their lives and people were still flocking to the faith. Why? Because they realized if Jesus is worth dying for, by golly, he must be worth living for. So how did the early church attract so many? Well, the culture saw the mighty power that God provides, and, and they wanted to be part of that, like a moth to a flame or, or a, a metal uh, to magnet. They, they wanted to be a part of that. The, the early followers of Jesus allowed God to touch every aspect of their lives, uh, not just a claim that called them to spend an hour a week in church together. The, these early believers, they had a passion that affect, affected really all of their relationships. It affected the way they view others, the, the hope that they find in difficult situations, and the desire to experience all that God had in store for them. So this morning, as we kind of wind down, we've taken a historical view, in many cases, of what was going on in the life of the early followers of Christ. But in that, you and I find a challenge today. C.S. Lewis once declared that Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see, friends, to those early believers, their faith was of infinite infinite importance. It was also of eternal importance. Is following Jesus to you and to me of infinite importance? How would our lives look differently if we were intentional and deliberate about living in this Christ-like connection? How can we make it so that what we do in here will fill the streets out there? What does that koinonia, that connection, that relationship look like in your life? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. But am I truly devoted to being a follower of Christ? Because following Christ will affect the way that, that we treat others. Following Christ will affect the way we spend our time. Following Christ will affect the way we spend our money. Following Christ will affect the things that get our allegiance. Following Christ will affect the way we seek our identity and our worth. Friends, to be a disciple, you have to be different from the world because we're following Jesus who was intentionally different from the world. Let me pray for us. Would well, your heavenly Father, 
Scripture tells us that you are at work in our lives. May your love for others overflow more and more, and may you keep growing in our knowledge and our understanding that you provide to us. May we be constantly reminded of what really matters. And Lord God, may our lives, our words, our actions, our attitudes be an outflow of the work that you're doing in us. May those around us be blessed by the fact that we have been blessed. Lord, we read about the early church and the way that their sense of community was so radical. How are we pursuing those connections in our lives? Lord God, during this time of reflection, may we ponder the greatest invitation ever sent forth, that you invite us to accept your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, things that we could never achieve or experience on our own. That's why we need a Savior. And Lord, that's why you sent one. May our lives reflect the fact that you are at work in us and with us and through us. And may all we do bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.